Good day and welcome to Tales from the Bridge. Today, Charles Strauss is on the show and Kevin, Marty, and myself have a fantastic conversation with Charlie. Check out antipope.org for Charlie's blog. He's always writing interesting stuff on his blog and you can get involved and join the conversation. And then if you haven't read any of Charlie's work, check out the show notes of this episode. We're going to have a few links in there to get you started. Thank you so much for joining us today. Let's make our way over to the bridge. pleased to have Charlie Strauss with us today. Charlie is an award-winning science fiction author of over 20 published novels and novellas. His novels have been nominated for six Hugo Awards, and he's won three Hugos for Best Novella. Charlie is well known for his sci-fi and fantasy publishing history, but many of us are familiar with him from his Laundry Files series of novels and the Locust Award-winning 2005 hard sci-fi novel Accelerando. He has degrees in computer science and pharmacy, and has been a prolific blogger for the last two decades, and just generally seems to be an interesting guy. We're excited to have you on the show, Charlie. Thanks for being here. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to be here. So how are you doing? Oh, it's been a wild ride. I do not recall signing up or signing any consent forms for this crazy dystopian plague novel we're living through. Me neither. But uh, it's been... um, well, I have avo- I've avoided COVID-19 so far. My luck is probably going to run out in the next few weeks, though, as I'm going back to my first in-person science fiction convention in two and a half to three years, uh, in about two weeks. Where is it? So Which one's that? Um, Satellite 7. It's a local one in Glasgow. And um, I just can't stay away. At least I can't stay away indefinitely. If I test positive beforehand, I'll stay away. But hey. Well, we, I'm sure everybody appreciates that. Are you going to go to uh, Chicon or the Chicago one in September? Yes, I intend to. Again, it really depends on the practicalities because for me, it's about an eight or nine hour flight. Mm. Um, Although it turns out there are now direct flights from Edinburgh that I can get there. So no having to queue at multiple hubs. Um, Also, I'm on the Hugo shortlist again this year for the first time in a few years. And uh, I don't really want to miss out on congratulating the eventual winner who will be somebody else, obviously, because that's how it happens. (laughs) <laughs> this is for uh, this is for the best series, yeah. W- which series is it? Can you tell us about it? Um, the Merchant Princes Stroke Empire Game series, nine books long, about a million words in all. I've been writing them since two thousand and two, and the last one came out last year. So it's basically a twenty-year project, which is now wrapped up. So this is really the last chance to fit on that or any awards list. It started out with a plan of doing a series of nearly cross-genre books. They were going to look like portal fantasy initially, but with a science fictional premise underlying them and be sort of big, fat, thrillerish books. I originally pitched it to Trilogy. No plan survives contact with the enemy, or in this case, an editor. <laughs> and what eventually came out was six slim fantasy brand, fantasy marketed novels, which uh, were not my original format. I got one week's notice to chop the first book in two. Anyway... A few years later, I was able to convince my British publisher, who hadn't, t- hadn't rocked up at that point, to let me reassemble them in the original intended form. But on that basis, I got a, s- a contract for a sequel trilogy, which is the elevator pitch was Merchant Princes, The Next Generation. The premise is, tell me you've heard this before, a 30-ish investigative journalist in Boston doing the tech figures, let go by her employer, and goes at her adoptive mother and fetch about this. Whereupon mother hands her 
a shoebox full of leftovers from her birth mother, who was found dead in a park in Boston 30 years earlier, including a locket. When she looks at the magic locket, she finds herself in a forest in another world, and whereupon she is nearly killed by a mounted knight with an M16, as one is. Uh, Vara Hopskip and a jump, we discover there are a few interrelated families of people who call themselves world walkers they can look at a not work design and teleport into another timeline up until about 250 years ago their timeline and our timeline were not that dissimilar they lived in a version of the eastern seaboard that had been colonized by a high viking civilization it's a world where christianity islam and judaism don't exist um but about 200 years ago they discovered they could avoid the local bandits by crossing into our universe or vice versa. So they had a bit of an edge in uh, moving goods up and down the coast. And then a funny thing happened. The other universe they had access to, things began to be invented like railroads and telegraphs. Um, And this gave them an immense competitive edge in their own timeline where they were the only people who could get a message from side of a continent to the other in hours to days instead of weeks to months. By the present, they had effectively become the Medici's rich, so rich that the royal family wanted to marry into them. Mm-hmm. Um, in our world, well, they're the only people who can get heroin and cocaine shipments from anywhere in the Americas into New England without any fear of interception. They're the mob. Um, they're basically using interdimensional travel for crude mercantilist purposes. When our heroine is a tech journalist who's been following the dot-com and uh, the startup thing, uh, she responds to their vision of uh, telling her, ah, now you're a duchess, you will marry a nobleman who we will choose for you and pop out babies in a drafty castle. Her response is pretty much what you'd expect of any 21st century businesswoman, which is to say, I'm not doing this, I'm going to invent a new business model. And it all ends in tears or... Carpet bombing with hydrogen bombs. Perfect. Perfect. That's and so you said that's that's going to be the last in that series. That's that's how the first series ends. The last series is well, she'd opened up routes to other timelines, and things get much more complicated in the next trilogy, where a variant version of our United States, the ones who where. George W. Bush was murdered in the White House with a terrorist nuke in 2003. Mm-hmm. As you can imagine, they take the war on terror seriously. Homeland Security has responsibility for securing the United States from threats from all other parallel universes. Can you spell mission creep? Well, things go off the rails when they discover another North American timeline that is also a revolutionary democratic republic, Wukes. Only their version of democracy is a bit more recognizable to Lenin or Trotsky. So it's clear you like writing about dystopian. You just don't like living in dystopian worlds. Um, how do you keep them all straight? Because you've got, you know, you've got a lot of different types of worlds. Tell me about your world building. What do you, what do you do? Um, well, every so often I kill off a lot of characters. I think throwing a brisk nuclear war every six or seven books works wonders, as does in a different series, bringing back an elder god to eat people alive, basically. Right. Um, having said that, I didn't actually plan this. Um, the Laundry Files was originally a single short novel, The Atrocity Archive, about an 80,000 word novel. <clears throat> then I got really wildly ambitious plans around 2004 to make it a trilogy. 
I have just handed in what will probably be marketed as book 12 in the series. Um, having said that, it's actually forked a spin-off series, The New Management, which is not so much uh, civil servants, spies and bureaucrats versus tentacle monsters as ordinary people living in a version of the United Kingdom that's run by an elder god as prime minister. Absolutely no political satire intended here. Um, <laughs> this again, is, escape, merch- is this Escape from Yoke Land? Um, no, this is the, the latest one that I've just handed in is Season of Skulls. Oh, Season of Skulls, sorry. Which is the third in the new management books after Deadline's Dream and Quantum of Nightmares. And the world building process has been completely different for the Laundry Files and new management books from the Merchant Princes. The Merchant Prince's first series was pretty much mapped out from fairly early on, <clears throat> as I explored many of the implications of parallel universe travel for economics in the first big fat book. I originally wrote what would be a 600-page book that got chopped in two. Um, the next trilogy, again, was sort of mostly planned in advance um, around 2012 and um, stayed on the rails, whereas the laundry has just driven all over the map, crossed the English Channel, and is go- driving merrily around the continent now. Um, I was not planning in 2003 on having Yorkshire invaded by an elven armoured division or uh, Nialat Hotep, the Black Pharaoh, take the government. <laughs> now I'm just trying to keep up with my own imagination. Uh, is it the Mountains of Madness that was kind of in the Colder War, which I want to hear a little bit yes. about later on, but you, you like to bring in the stories you love? Is it, is it for you? Is it something you want to do? Is it something that you think the readers relate to by bringing those elements together? Um, the Laundry Files rips heavily off Lovecraft's Mythos, but isn't actually a true Lovecraftian Mythos. It's not true to it. Uh, the positioning is that H.P. Lovecraft is a very unreliable narrator and guide who got a lot of things wrong. Um, I think in Echoid, Bob says that Lovecraft was basically about as reliable as the author of the Anarchist's cookbook. You can't use him as a safe guide to how to deal with these things, and uh, he got a lot of them wrong. But yeah, I'm largely trying to develop my own world and recomplicate it. I think it took on a life of its own after about book four, because I'd originally been doing riffs on British spy thrillers. I mean, Situational humour often comes in where you have a protagonist and a situation who who are just utterly incompatible or ill-assorted. In the original Atrocity Archives, Bob is a sandal-wearing hacker geek, kind of was reading Slashdot and hacking on Linux kernel drivers in the late 1990s, who's fallen into a traditional British spy agency, except straight out of Len Dayton, except the spy agency is dealing with Lovecraftian tentacle monsters and keeping them out. And um, Bob gradually learns better. Um, He's a very unreliable narrator. If he says something is impossible in book two by book five, he'll be dealing with it. Um, But as I got further in, after iterating through specific spy thriller authors I was fond of and trying to write a Lovecraftian horror spy comedy in their style, um, by book five, which to be fair was about eight years after I began, I got bored with that and said, right, okay, instead I'm going to tackle urban fantasy subgenres. What can I do with vampires? Um, which is where the first line of a Reese's chart comes from. It's the only time I've ever sold a book on an elevator pitch over dinner. Hmm. Don't be silly, Bob, said Mo. Everybody knows vampires don't exist. 
opening sentence of a vampire novel. <laughs> Had to be. Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. was followed by the superheroes and supervillain novel, because again, then elves. And the whole point of the Alfar invasion, I realized that I'd fallen into the pitfall of taking on board a whole lot of fantasy tropes uncritically. If you deal with vampires, certain baggage comes in with it that creeps in unless you're very, very cautious about defining how they were self. For example, vampires are burnt by sunlight. Well, that's part of it, but also holy water and repelled by crucifixes. What's this? This is Roman Catholic stuff. Are you saying that uh, Christianity is an accurate guide to the universe or is there something else at work here? Um, and in the case of the nightmare stacks, what I realized was there's a common trope in a lot of urban fantasy, which has been called the masquerade. There's a whole monograph on it in TV tropes, which is the idea that there's some committee of the supernatural who always hit reset if anything is going to draw the attention of the supernatural to ordinary human beings. <clears throat> and um, I thought, right, what happens if, to steal Michael Caine's line from the Italian job, you blow the doors off it. Um, you cannot easily disguise an actual armored division rampaging through a major city. It's gonna have after effects. So I wrote that fairly straightforwardly, also inverted Clark's law. Arthur C, one of Arthur C. Clark's laws was any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And it works perfectly the other way around. Any sufficiently advanced magic is indistinguishable from technology. Ask yourself how a high magical elven civilization would approach warfare, and it won't be with swords and single combat. It's more likely to look like combined arms warfare um, with battalion battle groups, much like an invasion of Ukraine, only on unicorns. <laughs> um, with with theater air defense basilisks to shoot down planes. Anyway, I got through that, and the obvious thing is, how does the government deal with this? And the answer is badly, because it is not the sort of government, this is not the sort of problem that governments have evolved to deal with. It's what, it's what Ian M. Banks would call an outside context problem. Um, you're confronted with a problem that you can barely comprehend, and it's a civilization ender if you get it wrong. And indeed, it does put an end to the British government in Book 8, whereupon a new management takes over. Mm. Um, it is not a coincidence that I rewrote that in the wake of the Brexit referendum, which up upended all the assumptions about governance in the UK. Um, much as Trump's election victory in the United States in 2016 really pulled the rug out from under people, or the collapse of the Soviet Union pulled the rug out from under the entire technophile genre in 1991. Um, Brexit forced me to reconsider just how bad things would go in the UK in the event of a true crisis. Because at one point in July 2016, we appeared to have three constitutional crises running in the same week. And it occurred to me, you know, at this point, you're going to have an elder god step forward and look like the lesser evil. Is it important for science fiction writers to be politically cognizant? Like, is it just a material or a substance that many writers can do without? Or is politics naturally baked into good science fiction? I think you have to be aware of the human impact of politics, whatever you're writing. Um, whoever it was who said the personal is political was absolutely right. They weren't simply talking about abortion rights. 
um, just about anything can be political if you look at it from the right angle. Um, but what you do with it and how you accommodate it is very much up to you, the writer. You can very often avoid politics, but that generally means you're taking it's a, you're taking the situation, you're dealing with at face value. Um, behind every space opera where you have tramp steamers in space toddling around with three merchant crews trading goods from planet to planet, you have essentially a mercantilist setup with various thalassic empires, in effect, in space, butting heads against each other, and small fry trying to eke out a living on the fringe. This is implicitly something that you can analyze politically, although you don't have to go there. Um, because the laundry file started out dealing with essentially a civil service bureaucracy, because all spy agencies are civil service bureaucracies, the politics was unavoidable. However, um, in the new management books, I'm trying to avoid the big scale political involvement of having civil servants in play by having it be about the little people for values of little up to the scale of billionaires trying to survive in a rapidly changing world dominated by a hideous crisis um, where all the rules are up in the air, everything is changing. It's a de facto revolution, but you know, people still need to eat, people still need to get along and billionaires will be looking for new ways to make, make a buck at it. I mean, we've had a crash course in financial opportunism during a disaster in the past couple of years. Um, all the questionable contracts that went out for personal protective equipment during COVID-19. Um, people are making money off that. And um, in any other crisis, it's going to happen as well. Uh, if we did, in fact, see rule by Lovecraftian Elder God arrive, somebody would be getting the government contracts to supply altars for the human sacrifices. <laughs> So you've been, um, I've been reading your blog. Um, this has been going on for a long time. You've, uh, you've been doing that for 20 years now, and you have an engaged audience there. Tell me about this blog. Uh, I can barely remember how I began. Actually, back in the beginning, I was doing some blog entries on Slashdot before 2000. And... Um, for those who don't know, Slashdot is a, a somewhat nerdy website that talks about general tech topics. It used to be all about Linux, and it's progressed from there. It passed its peak 20 years ago, and I've long since abandoned it. <clears throat> but I was renting a co-located server for my own nefarious purposes back then, and thought, right, I'll just start blogging on my own machine. And um, eventually added a, a threaded comment system to it, to the software I was using. And weirdly, people turned up and been commenting on my essays and rants. And at first, it was just a way of journaling or writing down any random thoughts that occurred to me. To some extent, I was provoked into setting up a blog because Bruce Sterling had just airily pronounced on his own blog that blogging was dead. So, of course, that was my cue to begin. This was around 2000, 2001. So it has become a lot harder over the past couple of years, though, because... On the one hand, a slight lack of stimulus. I've been a homebody. I've only made one trip more than 40 miles from my front door in two and a half years. Um, on the other hand, age and I guess a bit of depression. Uh, depression is a fairly common thing right now with COVID-19 and lockdowns. So I'm going to give myself a pass on that. 
but I do want to pick up on the uh, blogging at some point. Um, it's very useful sometimes for focus grouping ideas. A while back, I read somebody's opinion that if they have a programming problem, this was on um, Hacker News, which is yet another nerdy geek tech website. What they said was they go to, um, I'm trying to remember the name of a particular questions and answers website for programmers, post code snippets, get suggestions as to what's wrong with it. Stack Exchange? Um, Stack, yeah. They go to Stack Exchange, they would post their question and then a very outrageously, obviously wrong reply to it under a sock puppet account and then wait for all the corrections to come in. You know, they might not know how to answer it themselves, but they knew what was not workable. So they post that and provoke people who knew better into replying. And I've sometimes done that with my blog in that I would put a devil's advocate case for or against a topic that I had an opinion on and uh, leave the commenters to squabble over it and uh, correct me or draw things to my attention. Um, I haven't done it a lot lately, but the last time I did it in serious anger around 2015, I posted a set of, a checklist of rules for things not to put in a space opera. Um, as you can probably imagine, I was planning a space opera at that time. That space opera hasn't surfaced yet because unfortunately I was partway through a rewrite in 2017 when my father died. Um, he was 93 at the time, so it wasn't unexpected, but my mother was pretty ill as well. And I didn't want this to be the one book that killed both parents. So it went on the shelf until now. I'm probably going to pick it up and finish it this year or next. Um, but yeah, I do have another space opera in the works whenever I can get myself enough free time from writing more laundry file stuff. Well, you are a pretty prolific author. You've got a, a lot of things going on and you've, you've put, put a lot out. How do you manage that? Do you, do, you, do you find a set time each day to write or what's your workflow? I'm not as big as I look. Um, I have averaged about one and a half novels a year. It's just after 20 years, that's a lot of novels. Um, it also has the advantage that after a couple of years, you can send off for an extra book. So it's one book a year for a couple of years and then two books in a year. And that looked pretty productive. As for what I'm doing, working with, an in with a large series continuity, in some ways it's difficult because you've got to keep track of a lot of balls in the air. On the other hand, you already have a huge repertoire of characters you're intimately familiar with. There's a lot of stuff you don't have to reinvent. Um, when I began writing the space opera in 2015, it was a bit of a rude shock because it was the first new setting I tried to pioneer since I think 2009, six years out. And it was really difficult to get going because I knew what I didn't want to do which was anything I'd done before. Um, I didn't want to do anything obviously derivative, but coming up with something new is, uh, it gets harder the more you do. Again, a thing I've discussed with other writers that we've noticed is the early novels are easy. You, you get the ideas easily. They come, they, the, the, there's a lot of fruit on the tree, but by the time you get a couple of dozen books in, you've plucked all the uh, apples on the low branches. You're having to work much harder to get the uh, same kind of results. And the result is I'm now a much slower writer than I used to be. Um, very often when I'm writing, all I can do is 500 to 1,000 words in one day. And it's a day with multiple hours sitting bum in chair staring at a screen. Uh, it used to be that I would just churn out 1,000 words an hour for as many hours as I needed to sit in front of the computer. Um, can't do that anymore. 
partly that's also age because um i turned 58 later this year i mean how did that happen mm. um but yeah so the writing methodology changes over time my main problem the past few years is just avoiding burnout because um i've gone for a patch where I lost my editor at Tor, David Hartwell, who died suddenly in, 19, in 2016. Then my father, then a close personal friend, then my mother, and then just as I thought it was all receding in the rearview mirror and I'd finished the Merchant Princess series, along comes COVID-19 to mess with my head. Um, so I'm just plod- trying to plod along one day at a time, which I think goes for most of us. I agree. Well, and how has COVID-19, I mean, obviously you've been stuck at home, um, but online, has that given you new opportunities to engage with audience? Um, instead of traveling to do talks, have you been able to do anything online? Has that been a positive in any way? Um, it's been frustrating, actually. I'm increasingly aware that I'm relatively isolated. And while I've been doing Zoom interviews and podcasts, I don't do enough of them. Um, to some extent, it's apathy. Low-grade depression from being isolated due to COVID feeds back into itself and results in further isolation. So getting out of my shell and coming here to do this interview with you is helpful. Um, maybe it is bringing me to the attention of the audiences because I assume a lot of your audience in Guelph do not travel to SF conventions as a rule. I mean, maybe if there's one in Toronto, but um, maybe Chicago is within range, but not other continents and other coasts. So... Possibly I am reaching a different audience, but I don't. Sorry, let me reframe. When we're writing books, we don't necessarily have a close grasp of who our audience is because the feedback loop is huge. Um, I write a book, hand it to an editor. Maybe a year later, it gets published. And over the next year, people buy it and read it. That's a three-year gap. And those people will be reading it in other countries and other languages. And what kind of reception is it going to get? I don't know. Just today, I signed a book contract for the translation of the Atrocity Archives and the Jennifer Morgue into Chinese. Those books were published in 2003 and 2006. What relationship is a translated version of 20-year-old novels going to have in China? I don't know. Um, It is possible they'll sink without trace. It's also possible I might visit China at some point in five years and discover I'm famous. Who knows? How has the last couple of years affected your writing, not so much your writing habits, but the stories and themes that you want to embrace? Have they evolved? A little bit. If anything, um, I mentioned the deaths of my parents. That had quite an effect. Uh, My mother got particularly ill in 2018. She had a series of strokes and was admitted to a nursing home for her last year. And while I was visiting a nursing home, 200 miles away from my own home by train every weekend. Um, That was pretty disruptive for regular writing routine and also very, very depressing. So rather than trying to write productively, because I was going for a burnout period, I just gave myself to do therapy writing, which is to write whatever the hell I felt like. And if it goes somewhere commercial, then great. If not, it's been therapy. Imagine my surprise when um, 12 months later I had Deadlies Dreaming in my hands, which was essentially a spin-off novel set in the Laundry Files universe, but with none of the other characters in it. 
dealing with entirely an entirely new cast, an entirely new situation. And um, that having started, it was left hanging a bit. And um, I got into a conversation with one of my co-conspirators, fans, friends, whatever you call it, at the Worldcon in Dublin in summer of 2019. And he asked me a couple of pointed questions about what happened to a particular character in their situation afterwards. And uh, that set me on the road to writing Quantum of Nightmares. Um, and uh, I've actually just finished Eve's story, at least most her main story in Season of Skulls, the third in the series. And part of the impetus for Season of Skulls is readers periodically ask me, when are you gonna write a historical Laundry Files novel? Because obviously you've got a secret government agency for dealing with magic. They must have done stuff in the past. And, you know, they always seem to be asking, what did Angleton do during the Second World War? At least that's what they're asking for implicitly. What they weren't asking for was what happens when Eve Starkey from Dead Lies Dreaming wakes up in 1816 in the Regency era. Uh, I mentioned the comedy value where you get a protagonist in a situation they're utterly ill-adapted for. Eve is essentially magic, well, magical uh, Ernst Savro Blofeld's evil magical persistent with magic and snabby things. She is totally not the sort of person who's at ease in a Jane Austen setting, much less chasing around a European company with Baron Victor von Frankenstein and a very odd boy who he's been um, cloning on behalf of a war office because it's the Napoleonic Wars. And of course, they want their own Napoleon clones. Boys from Brazil riffs here. You've mentioned Ian M. Banks a couple of times, Charlie, and you're in Edinburgh. Uh, did you know him? Could yes. Can you can you tell us a little bit about him? Because uh, I just love Ian's work; it's my favorite. And uh, I, if you could just tell us a little bit about him, I'd really appreciate that. I cannot say that I knew Ian particularly well. Um, did go drinking a few times because he lived in North Queensferry, just across the. Uh, <clears throat> sorry, Edinburgh is on a large tidal estuary called the Firth of Forth. North Queensferry is just across the Firth from Edinburgh proper, but that actually puts it um, by road about 10, 15 miles away. And that's a long distance in the UK. So I would occasionally meet up with Ian and with Ken McLeod in a pub for drinks and random discussions. Um, I'd also run into the SF conventions, but I would not have called myself an intimate of his. For that, you really need to talk to Ken McLeod, who is also Scottish-based and is now currently moved across to uh, Gorok near Glasgow. Other side of the country, it's almost 60 miles away. Ian was very, very political in attitude. I don't have a huge grip on Canadian politics, but I'll use United US politics as a reference point. If you say somebody is a hard left-wing politician in the US, you might be thinking of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or the rest of the squad. Um, by Ian's standards, those are all right-wingers. Um, Ian was, in US terms, somewhere between a hardline socialist and a communist. Um, this is sort of reflected in the approach he took to his writing, which, even when it wasn't explicitly political, was fiercely humanitarian and very, very angry at abuses of power. Star Trek very much has a watered-down left-wing sensibility, you know, the idea that we're no longer motivated by personal gain, we live in a society of plenty, 
make duplicates of pretty much anything to order. It didn't, it doesn't seem to me to have interrogated the political side of that very intensely. Maybe this is just because I'm not that familiar with Star Trek. Um, Ian did go into the details of the political underpinnings of stuff. The culture in particular is on the one hand can be read as a socialist utopia. Um, a slogan one citizen mentions at one point is money is a symptom of poverty. You need money because you need to allocate scarce resources. If you if you don't if if resources are plentiful and not scarce, you don't need money. And yet um, the culture is only usually only seen from the outside, picking very very unpleasant fights with very nasty people in um, a galaxy that's at least as unpleasant and wild as our own world. Indeed, the culture very some very often seems to play the role. Well. He very often tells stories from the points of view of special circumstances, which bears a relationship with a culture that the more dirty hit squads of the CIA bear to the US government in dealing with the outside. So he doesn't take an unvarnished view of uh, a post-scarcity society. When, when you're dealing with this, with your, when you're thinking about your, the 700,000 year in the future society, do you have any ideas of how you will manage scarcity, resource scarcity, and things like that? Oh, it's pretty grim dark. <laughs> <laughs> um, there is one thing that, hum that humans, and presumably any subspecies derived from us by intentional genetic engineering or evolution, will always be scarce of, and that is peer appreciation or authority or social status. I think human beings manufacture scarcity in social situations, and that leads to really unpleasant, arguably the worst political conflicts. I mean, we live on a planet where if we were rational as a species and allocated resources equitably, there would be enough food, enough energy and enough resources for all of us to eat reasonably well. And yet we have some countries where people are starving and yet others where there are billionaires, multi approximate trillionaires, in fact. Um, one day that isn't right, but the question is what to do about it. It's a hard problem. Um, we seem to manufacture it because some of us are driven to better ourselves or to get more of everything. Um, having a billion dollars puts you, means that basically you can buy anything that is available for sale on Earth that you could reasonably want. Want to spend a week on the International Space Station? You can have that for about 50 to 100 million and change. Um, want a replacement for your liver? That's even cheaper. And yet there are plenty of things money can't buy. Nobody's selling immortal youth yet, whatever Peter Field wants. Um, nobody's selling the, the throne of the Martian government yet, whatever Elon Musk wants. So... Above $1 billion, having more money makes no actual practical difference to your lifestyle. Indeed, one can argue that above $100 million, there's no real benefit to be had from it. So why do we have so many people who seem hell-bent on get, becoming the first trillionaire? Um, money has stopped being about insulation from deprivation for these people and become something else entirely. It seems to be a counter in a game they're playing. So if you have no resource scarcity, you have to introduce intrigue into the plot by irrationality or in humanity, 
which will be interesting, I guess, because your humans won't be humans. There'll be some derivative thereof, but it, the story will still need to be accessible to us humans. That's yeah. got to be a tricky thing to manage. It is, but I took a different approach to it, which is there is an overall MacGuffin which allows us to open wormholes from star system A to star system B. Otherwise, you don't really have a valid basis for space opera because let's face it, slurve and light travel sucks. <clears throat> By putting it two thirds of a billion, a million years in the future, the entire local group of galaxies has been colonized. There are constraints on wormhole travel. Um, there's only a single generator that could produce wormholes anywhere. And the owners are very, very jealous, um, rather viciously inclined towards anyone who tries to take it away from them. And um, they have demand-based pricing a la Uber. Now, a result of this is you get colony groups setting up on planets they can stake for the claim on. And the social status thing I mentioned, you have some groups who decide it's their job to rule. Uh, we can see this with white supremacists in the United States, for example. They believe that they should be in charge and nobody else should should have access to anything. You know, everybody is there to serve them. Some of them, I think, would be quite happy to bring back chattel slavery if they could. And um, when you add half a million years of CRISPR and genetic modification, you will have really unpleasant people de designing their own slave races to look after them. And the side effect of this is more slaves than owners, and eventually the owner species goes extinct. Because we're talking deep time here. Um, chattel slavery in the United States only lasted about 250 to 300 years. What's, it, what's going to take it through 200,000 to 300,000 years? Well, it isn't. Um, I'm going with a general rule of thumb, which is that slavers go extinct because... I must confess to some extent I'm pandering to my own prejudices here. And the uh, former slaves go free. But there's a twist. How do you ensure that the slaves stay obedient, at least until you go extinct? Answer you give them a predisposition towards religious belief. You're not the slave owners, you're the gods. At least this is what they set out to do. So the result is you have an awful lot of hominid species running around the galaxies who are prone to holy wars and fits of zealotry and enthusiasm following prophets. Um, this is a setting that really does have a crapsack tendency to hatch wars. And presumably to make more slave races. If you're, if you're prone to that kind of thing, you're probably prone to thinking you should be in charge and making your own slaves. You, you would think so, but luckily it turns out, well, there are failure modes here. There are also relatively idealistic societies by people who decided to opt out of a whole rat race and use genetic engineering to abolish intersectional oppression. Um, in general, they discover entirely new and, and exciting failure modes for that mode, because really genetic engineering sucks as a way of making human beings do what you want them to do. Um, eugenics does not work. We cannot breed human beings like livestock because we are human. It, the changes take far longer than any human society can manage. To accomplish. Um, we are very, very bad at designing social structures that outlive a human life expectancy. Um, the result is it's very difficult for us to actually create projects that outlive a human life expectancy. Again, this is part of the reason why I think the slavers will always fail. They'll be terrible at maintaining things in the long run. Well, uh, Charlie, I've uh, spent some time on your blog, and uh, we've certainly touched on a few political subjects here and there. And uh, I just... Um... 
you mentioned Moscow. So I was just wanting to give you a platform to hear some more of what you say about uh, what's going on in Europe these days. What's going on with the war? Oh. Uh, tell us, tell us how it looks from your point of view. You've been getting the same headlines we've been getting, I guess. Yeah. Um, it's an unconscionable mess. Um, from a hyper-local perspective in the UK, the most interesting thing has been watching um, a lot of cockroaches scuttling for cover when Russia suddenly turns out to not be our friends. Hmm. Um, we're strong, there's, an, there's been quite a lot of funding from Russian sources for the current Conservative government in London. Um, particularly notable uh, was uh, Boris Johnson's promotion of a friend of his whose yacht he'd spent rather a lot of holidays on, uh, who he promoted to the House of Lords as Lord Lebedev of Siberia. Wow. I mean, when it's at that level, um, you're spending time on his yacht and he's donating money to your party and you put him in the House of Lords. Well, it's not the first time there's been a payoff in the shape of a, somebody get gong or an honour for paying into the Conservative Party's coffers. But it's a bit blatantly off colour when it's clearly uh, Russian money mm -hmm. coming in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so what's going to happen? Are people actually... Are there consequences yet? Is is this going to blow back into the Conservatives' face or Johnson's face, or is everything just sort of freebie these days, like it seems to be in the states? Um, what we've got under the Conservative government in the UK at present is roughly the equivalent of the Trump administration in the US, only with no term limits. Oh Jesus! They haven't bothered doubling down on the Christian Dominionism, which, to be fair, is not in fashion in the UK because they don't need to yet. They don't need to keep the base motivated. They're still in power until they have to hold an election, which is a couple of years off. Meanwhile, um, they really do seem to be trying to make bank while they're in power for all they can. Mm. Um, politics in Northern Ireland and in Scotland seems to be on an increasingly divergent course of the UK. I would actually bet on the UK in its current form not being around in a decade. Um, one or more of the member countries will leave. Hmm. Um, but I'm not going to say more than that at this point. It's There are too many imponderables, too many question marks. All I can say is it does feel very horribly dystopian. The new management is a political satire on the feeling of what it's like to be in the UK right now that there is something horrible and malign where cruelty is the entire point of running the government. Well, Whew, well that doesn't sound great. <laughs> All right. And, um, and what's your take on Putin? What's your take on the Ukraine? Are they going to hold them off? Do you think this war is going to spread? Do you think uh, NATO is going to end up being right at the border of Russia? What, what do you see happening? Oh boy. Again, I don't speak Russian or Ukrainian and I'm not an expert, but, from what I can see, Putin has all along been saying what he intended to do mm -hmm. the past 20 years, which is he wants to make Russia great again. Um, Russia has always been an imperial project for the past three or 400 years. Um, in 1917 and 1918, the Treaty of Brest, bits of the Russian Empire got peeled off and managed to defend their independence to a greater or lesser extent. For example, Finland. Mm -hmm. Um, if you're wondering why Finland is suddenly eager to join NATO, um, it's because they think they're being threatened with uh, by Russia again, 
They were under the Russian boot for 200 years. Mm-hmm. Poland was part of the Russian Empire as well. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, 1991, collapse of the Soviet Union, nearer chunks of the Russian Empire began breaking away, not former Warsaw Pact countries or places like Poland, but what they called the near abroad, Ukraine, for example, which had been under the Russian control for a bit considerably longer. Empires that lose control of their vassal states tend to get very neurotic and extreme nationalism as a common side effect. The UK is not going in that direction of relationship to Canada, luckily, um, although we saw a spasm of it in the Falklands War in 1982 when, well, I don't know if you remember the Falklands War, but mm-hmm. the Argentinian, Argentinian junta really expected the British not to try and take the Falklands back. Anybody in the UK could have told them that's not going to happen. What we are seeing domestically in the UK is English nationalism has for a century or more been subsumed under the label British nationalism. And we're now actually seeing English nationalism turning on the other nations within the UK. Mm-hmm. Russia is now doing a rather similar thing onto what were formerly components of the Soviet Union. They've decided they want them back, but Ukraine has no independent existence. Ukraine is part of Russia. And, you know, that really gets up people's noses. I mean, you can see it here in Scotland, where the proportion of a population who want outright independence is somewhere between 45 and 55 percent, depending on when the poll is taken on the phase of the moon. Um, If we had English armoured divisions rolling up the motorway and insisting on um, teaching the Queen's English pronunciation in schools, that would change pretty quick. Um, I don't think Russia is going to win in the long term. I think what's happened is Putin's miscalculated and this is a nation. Nations run on their own mythos, their, their own vision of their identity. For example, for a long time, the UK has been running on the myth of the Battle of Britain and the just war against Hitler. And Putin has just handed Ukraine a nation-building war, one that will be marked in the history books, have war memorials, be a rallying call, and the justification for, for Ukrainian independence from here on. I mean, Ukraine was independent beforehand, but this is going to cement it um, and have people for a lifetime saying over our dead body to any suggestion of reunification with Russia. And it's going to have side effects elsewhere. He's been threatening Moldova, threatening Serbia, Sweden and Finland are on the border. Um, The Baltic republics were looking pretty unhappy about the way things were going. Well, and he's also justified everybody's greatest fears about Russia. And, and, you know, there's been this sort of plausible deniability that like Russia's joining the regular civilized world over the last 20 years. And suddenly everybody sees straight through that, right? Like they, and, and, and they're yep. calling his bluff. Now project forward 50 years mm. in the North American continent, just to make you uneasy. The United States is fairly clearly on the edge of a major crisis at this point with a significant minority who just do not accept majority voting outcomes or the legitimacy of other ethnic groups within the United States to vote. I think there's going to be a crisis. It's going to happen probably either this November at their midterms, but more likely next presidential election. If they get a Republican president going forward after Biden, all bets are off, especially if it's Trump 2.0, whoever that may be. I'm not sure Trump himself will run again, but it'll be somebody even, even more extreme on the same continuum. If that happens, I suspect that 
the existence of the United States as a functioning federation is going to be weakened rapidly. Mm. Um, they fought a rather significant war not that many decades ago to prevent states leaving unilaterally. So I don't think they'll be declaring outright independence, but it might get a bit tricky to travel between some of the states in a bit. Mm. And sooner or later, it'll be a de facto partition. Project forward a generation after that, and you may well have a revanchist imperialist trying to make America great again by invading the bits of the United States that don't want to be part of them. Right. Who knows? Right, right. And mm. how how are they doing this? Is and I I'm I'm a skeptic of religion, and I know it's a heavy topic that we don't want to get into too much here. But are the right wingers really just using faith and and their Christian religion as the the main device to actually have their people back them up to do these silly things that are actually hurting more people than than they're saving? Speaking as a non-American, mm-hmm. I think we are all non-Americans in the sense of the United States residents here. My take is that the Christian dominionism is a symptom rather than the cause. Um, the actual underlying root cause is white supremacism. The replacement theory they talk about, which is warmed over Nazi anti-Semitic tropes, that the Jews are organizing a conspiracy to outbreed the white Aryan nation, um, that's something they're all rather keen on. The Christianists, the Christian dominionists, have bought into this part um, full scale. Uh, They see themselves as the white Christian nation, and it's... You know, if they get control of the United States, it will be a very, very white bread Christian dictatorship. Um, the Baptist churches, as I understand it, split 20 to 30 years ago with a lot of the uh, black churches going their own way or being kicked out or separated from by the white Baptists, the dominionist types like the likes of Marjorie Taylor Greene are involved with. Um, and I think. People tend to cling to a religion because it tells them what they want to hear. And I think the racism comes first and religion is secondary. What they call Christianity also is not something that those Christians I know would recognize as that way. It's it's a weird American folk religion that is Christianity in name only. But then again, that goes for all religions. They splinter eventually until they become unrecognizable Mm -hmm. shards of each other. Mm -hmm. Um, I wish I didn't say, I, I wish I couldn't, I wish I could say that I felt paranoid about it, but it, the evidence does appear to be stacking up. Mm-hmm. Well, it does seem that way, but I mean, my observation is that maybe the, the reason that the, the right is resurging is they're willing to fight dirty, to commit major crimes uh, in their clawing their way to power. They, they're just more vicious fighters then you know the the it's not that we're over contented us left-wing you know pinkos uh it's not that we haven't been fighting it's not that we haven't been out there electing our people it's just that we've been playing fair and we've been playing by the law and uh also, and we're getting a lot of money to be made there's a lot of money to be made because fascist governments tend to be corrupt right and if you're a billionaire and want to get to be a double billionaire uh try and buy the government Right. They'll give you all sorts of really fat, lucrative contracts. Um, there does seem to be sort of a revolving door between the right-wing parties and the right-wing funding sources, and the right-wing funding sources make money off it. Um, it's a vicious circle, and uh, 
we can't really do anything about it without rebuilding regulatory frameworks that have been painstakingly dismantled over the past generation or two. Yeah, that's hardly the rallying cry that's going to like you know win the war. Rebuild the regulatory framework, right? It just yeah. doesn't have the inspirational quality that uh, hate <laughs> everybody that's not like you, uh, you know, has for Sorry, the other. I side. hate to be dragging dragging the tone down, but yeah, this is where the inspiration for the new management comes from. Basically, it's cathartic and so much of a relief if in Downing Street, instead of clown shoes Churchill, a deeply corrupt Churchill cosplayer. Um, you actually had a competent evil elder god who, you know, he wants to get get Brexit through because he wants to opt out of the European Convention on Human Rights. Why? Because it's stopping the death penalty and we need to resume executions. Why do you need to resume executions? So we can have human sacrifices. Oh, and why are you going to clamp down on, on emigration, on free movement? Oh, to stop the sacrifices escaping. <laughs> it all hangs together and makes perfect sense if you frame it properly. Right. And weirdly, the outcomes are the same. And if we're discussing the antics of an elder god, we can point and laugh, but also look at the behavior. And when you begin looking at the actual headlines and seeing the same behavior coming out of a conservative government, hopefully it'll stop and make a few people think. If a conservative government's behavior is functionally indistinguishable from a deranged elder god from Lovecraft, what does this say about us? If there was something or a species or a, a life form that could replace humans, would it be better? And I'm just going to bring this up here. <laughs> this <laughs> is, I'm holding up Saturn's children, but a space opera, it says underneath it. But this book is fantastic. And the scenario is the future where humans are extinct and we have free thinking robots is that a better future for the world? Is it worth it that they are trying to figure out how to bring humans back to life or should they be throwing the seeds away? I weighted the dice mercilessly in that book. Uh, the joke in that book is that nobody's figured out how to build an artificial intelligence. All they've got are very compact computers that emulate the human neural network and they put these inside the robot bodies and the robots basically think, well, they're people. They're human beings in bodies that can cope with non-terrestrial conditions because human beings don't play well in vacuum or in the atmosphere of Venus or on Pluto. You know, we tend to freeze or burn or asphyxiate. Um, basically, humans with better bodies for colonizing space because I wanted to write a uh, space colonization novel. Um, the result is they've got all the problems we have. You turn on a new robot for the first time and it basically emits pink noise and tries to eat its own foot for the first three or four months because it's learning the way humans do. And you gradually put it onto bigger and better bodies and eventually you come up with people. And in this novel, again, it was a comic. It was also a comic pratfall novel in a way. I wrote it in the centenary of Robert A. Heinlein's birth. And I wanted to do a Heinlein tribute novel because everybody's supposed to do one at some point. But the commonest kind of Heinlein tribute novel is the 1950s Heinlein juvenile novel. And I thought, wouldn't it be funny to write a dirty old man late period Heinlein novel instead? <laughs> so um, I did a tribute to Heinlein's novel Friday, in which our protagonist, Friar, she's a sex robot. 
Only, as you can imagine, a sex robot's life, when things are going well, is going to be pretty dull. She's going to spend most of her time in the bedroom. Why is she going around the solar system having adventures? Well, um, there are no humans anymore. She came off a production line six months after the human species went extinct, only nobody had noticed. Spent the next 70 years mothballed in the shipping crate, and the robots come with a few pre-trained skills. Her skill in particular was playing the hurdy-gurdy, and uh, she was switched on and pulled out of the box when there was a brief passing fad for Hungarian folk music. Thereafter, she is obsolete by design. It's really fun. What a fantastic one. Well, uh, Charlie, if uh, our listeners want to find you, where do they find you? On Twitter, I am Amand C. Stross. That's C-S-T-R-O-S-S. The blog um, is www.accelerando.org. That's about it. Be warned, while I do have a Facebook account, I check it once a year. I do not do Facebook. I probably should get onto some of these hit new young folks social networks like YouTube or TikTok or whatever, but hey, I'm an old dog. (laughs) Well, Charlie, thank you so much. It was delightful talking with you. Yeah, it was great to meet you. Great chatting with you. And uh, we look forward to your new work. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me. It's been great. Great. All right. Okay. Have a great night. Cheers. Bye. Thank you again for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation with Charlie Strauss. We sure did. And please like, subscribe, download all the episodes. We hope you enjoy our show, Tales from the Bridge, because we love doing it. Thank you for joining us today. Until next time.